Hello everyone, and welcome to what would have been Luke Law, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. Only I've taken a small break to focus on some screenwriting, I'm a bit busy on some horror movie business. But since we don't want to miss a show dropping at the end of the month, we do have an episode of Weird Together for everyone to enjoy. If you're a long-time listener to Luke Law, you'll have heard me credit Brennan Storr of the Ghost Story Guys as producer. In addition to his duties on those two shows, Brennan is also host of a horror movie review podcast called Weird Together, co-hosted with Joseph Camo, a professor of sociology from Georgia Southwestern State University. Weird Together celebrates independent horror movies, trying to shine a light on things you might not otherwise take the time to see, and it looks at them through a sociological lens. Their most recent episode covers the new Spanish horror film, The Communion Girl, and since it focuses heavily on the law of Catholicism, I thought it would be a good fit to tide you over until the middle of the month, when the next Luke Law will be released. Goodbye for now, the folklore will return soon. Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. This is a show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, the semester's, you know, kind of in full swing, so I'm kind of too busy to notice if I'm not doing okay. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I'll take it, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm hanging in there doing okay, you know, really busy, kind of in the new pad, kind of getting accustomed to that and, you know, right, doing right. okay. So how are you? I'm good. Uh, busy myself. Uh, I'm headed off to England here on Friday. And I'll be there for two weeks. So really just the last week and a half, if not two weeks, have just been prepping for that, trying to get everything recorded, kind of in a place where it can be edited when I'm on the road. But uh, yeah, so really that's just been it, just kind of getting ready and, and uh, moving, moving, uh, moving through. Sorry, I was distracted. I saw Rin's comment about my sound being a lot lower than Joseph's. So I, I was, uh, was like, oh shit, okay, well, I can't do anything about that myself. I can lower mine a little bit. I can bring the, the gain down a little bit. There yeah, let's do that. All right, so maybe that's a little bit better. Uh, well, speaking of which, let's say hey to our good friends that are hanging out with us. Rin, good evening, sirs. Appreciate you being here. And Derek, as always, good evening, gentlemen, our, our uh, very loyal and good uh, friends here hanging out with us. Yes, always look forward to hanging out with you guys on the stream. And uh, yeah, on this stream, Joseph, we are going to be talking about the brand new film just dropped on Shudder. It is a Spanish horror film, one of the few uh, non-English language films we've done on this show. It is Victor Garcia's The Communion Girl. And of course, lots to talk about. It's a very classic, in a lot of ways, a classic ghost story. We'll talk about it more in the Toctagon. So almost like a, a 2000s era paranormal procedural as well, a little bit like The Ring. But of course, we'll talk about all of that in a moment. Before we do, though, we got to do that thing we do on this show where we acknowledge that you never watch a film in a vacuum. You take everything that you've ever seen before into the theater with you, or in the living room in this case, and you take the shitty day you had, the great day you had, all that stuff. And so that's why before we talk about the communion girl, Joseph, we got to take apart the baggage. All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have going into the communion girl? Well, I, there was really just one thing I had going into this, and that is that I'm kind of a sucker for uh, horror that's kind of based in Latino sorts of uh, kind of cultural norms and, and cultural kinds of uh, folklore. Um, and this is probably part 
you know, I grew up, spent my life uh, as a child in Northern California and, and then Arizona. So right, you know, obviously significant Latino populations, you know, friends, family, uh, classmates, you know, significant population of Latinos that I grew up with. Uh, and I just, one of the early stories I remember of just like from when I was a teenager was the the story of the Yadrona, which we've talked about on here before, which is probably just something about that is maybe one of my favorite kind of folklore ghost stories. And it's probably just because I've known of, of it for so long and then how it makes me kind of think of home in many ways. And, you know, this this was not obviously the story of the Yadrona, but it, it had a very similar sort of feel to it in terms of, of, of the type of ghost story, you know, kind of rooted uh, in a lot of similar things culturally. So I went into it really wanting to like it and uh, just kind of really being drawn to sort of the premise and the material. All right. Well, for me, I had very little baggage going into this apart from, by God, I needed to find a movie for the stream. Because uh, <laughs> as we discussed on the Older Gods episode that just came out last week, uh, I am, as I'm heading away and I, I just haven't been watching as many, uh, horror films lately. Lately, I've been working so much. Usually I kind of watch movies in the evening, but lately I've been working well into the evening. So by the time I sit down to watch a movie, Joseph, it's 1130 midnight and I hate admitting this, but I'm tired now <laughs> at 1130 midnight in a way I never used to be. So especially since I've been working all day. So I sit down and put on a movie. And before long, it's, it's kind of, well, maybe I'll just lay down and watch it, you know, cause I'm a little bit, and then I fall asleep. And so, uh, and of course I, I feel like there's not as much good stuff coming out. You know, there was one film I had lined up. I've been waiting for it to be released. It's called Island, it's called Island Escape. And I, I enjoyed it. It's fun, but I didn't feel like there'd be a lot of meat on the bones for us to talk about on the show. So after I watched that and it was fine, I just had to really kind of scramble. So I ended up with, with the communion girl. And uh, when I, when you checked in with me to see which film we'd be covering on the stream, I hadn't seen all of it yet. I'd only seen the first half hour uh, and had fallen asleep. But I, as I said to you on the stream, I have a good feeling. And while we'll talk about how that, uh, how well that bore out in the Toctagon, I, I, that was sort of my, my biggest thing was, uh, was that. I'll, although I will say, I am not, I'm sort of the, a little bit of the opposite. I'm not a fan of horror based around Catholicism because by and large, I don't th think it's very interesting. I, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I was born to uh, an you know, Italian Catholic family. I was raised in the church. I was, you know, baptized, confirmed. I've did religious six years of, of religious education while I was, you know, a kid. So I kind of have a lot of grounding in that. And I find most Catholic horror is possession stuff and it's boring. So I wasn't hundred percent sure what to expect from this. And when this film, and I won't get too much into it, but when this film kind of opened with more human beats, uh, I was a little more on board. And so that was, I think that's really the baggage I had going in. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, it's just, it's interesting because it does speak to so much. And obviously, you know, what I do for work as a sociologist about how our, our environment and where we come from shapes the way we view things and our perspectives. And it's interesting to hear, you know, whereas for me, just because it reminds me of, of the, you know, where I come from in terms of region and, and culturally, for you, your experiences with Catholicism give you a very different frame of reference for this film. And so it's just fascinating to see how that shapes how we feel about it. Yeah, Absolutely. And now I'm very curious to know what you thought. And of course, there's only one place two handsome, bald gentlemen like us can have that conversation, Joseph. And that's a Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter. 
two-man leave? I think that young lady gets paler every time, Joseph. Yeah, you know, and when we do the audio only, we don't, you know, actually watch it. So I miss our scary friend, you know, it's when true. we do yeah. the audio versions. Yeah, she needs to get a little more sun, I think. Yes. So, Joseph, my friend, what were your thoughts on The Communion Girl? They were mixed. Um, you know, there were some things I really liked and some things where I think it let down. You know, let me start, though, I, I think with kind of building on something you just talked about. I think one of the strengths of the film, you talked about the human beats. I feel like the characters and the human stories and the acting were better than most horror films of sort of this tier, if that makes sense, in terms of uh, a production and and budget that we see. I, I, I felt like they did a reasonably good job creating, developing these characters and these families. Um, and, and I thought the acting was solid and, and some of the other things too, like certainly cinematography and such. But um, yeah, I think some of the human stories were, were, were kind of interesting and reasonably well done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I Some of the stuff that really drew me in were, were things like the relationship between Rebe and, and her alcoholic father which was deeply tragic, you know, and, and because he was abusive and, and really it just, it was a very upsetting dynamic. But then when things start to go very badly for her, it was heartbreaking that the only comfort she can find is under, is basically like in his embrace when he's passed out drunk. You know, I, I think more than anything in the film, that image has stuck with me. It was just such a deeply sad thing to see where that's, that's all you have. And, and because the film is set in the eighties, I think it's a really curious kind of window in, into a way we don't think about the 80s as much where you know the 80s we think about arcades and, and, and stuff like this but you know eight, the 80s were, were a decade when and to the 90s to a, to a degree as well where kids were just you know hey off you go get the hell out of here and you were just kind of left to in some cases raise yourself you know we were we were latchkey kids which is not a knock on my mother you know it was just her and, and my grandma trying to raise us and you know we came out fine they did a good job but it's alone a lot as a kid and, you know, there are kids who had it, of course, way, way worse. And for a lot of them, you know, that's, that's what they had. That was, you know, that comfort was the, the, the flashing television screen. That was your company. I've heard so many stories like that. And again, I don't think we look at that when we look at the 80s, you know, not, not as much, at least. I think we romanticize it. We romanticize stranger things, kids riding around on bikes and all this shit. Not, uh, uh, yeah, again, kids raising themselves in, in the flickering light of a television. Yeah, I mean, I was a latchkey child myself and certainly was there with you. So uh, 100%. Elijah saying uh, seen and not heard. Okay. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. that's exactly it. And, and this is a conversation Paul and I had on an episode of Ghost Story Guys once. You know, he was saying that kids were kind of considered to be just like indentured servants until they were old enough to, to fend for themselves. You know, you were taught how, how grandma and grandpa liked their tea. You were taught, you know, how to mix a drink. And, and that's kind of what you were there for. And in, in the case of Rebe and her father, you know, Rebe is clearly uh, meant to replace her mother. You know, her mother has abandoned her father. Or not abandoned, she's fled for her life because the guy's an abusive drunk. And so he is sort of demanding that Rebe fill that, that emotional space and, and, and like the, the labor in the house. I, I did also like, though, that they didn't make him a completely one-dimensional character because like when she is kind of in whatever it is she's in when she's kind of being taken by the creature or the the ghost or whatever and he find he he's he's angry and he's trying and it breaks into the room and then he sees her on the floor and he's like as a father would be even as shitty as he is he's like are you you know he's concerned for her right 
So, you know, it would be easy to have him completely dehumanize in that. And I think you see that also with, and I forget his name, but the drug dealer's character, right? He's, Shivo. You know, he's Shivo. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a shitty human and, you know, and, and, and it just felt like from the first kind of scene with him, he, I mean, he clearly, he, you know, he's looking to take advantage of women and it, you know, and then he's driving off with them and, you know, whatever, and going to, you know, uh, you feel like this is getting ready to be an assault situation and it doesn't, he's still kind of a, a douchey shitty person, but like he doesn't go there. And I think in these kinds of films, it'd be too easy to make him straight up that guy. And later on in the, in the film, he's still kind of a, you know, kind of a, a jerk, but like they don't just turn him into just this vile caricature completely, at least, right? They, and then his friend, who has an interest in, in Sarah, uh, you know, in a lot of films like this, he, you know, they, they, they set him up to be, oh, this guy who's looking at her from across the bar, then she's into him. And in a lot of films like this, he would turn out to also be like a really douchey guy, but like he isn't, right? You know, he has, you know, so, so I think there's some, some tropes that they, they, they move towards, but they don't completely fall into, which I thought was at least a little bit refreshing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there was something else, you know, with Chivo. He reminded me a little bit of the drug dealer character whose name I've completely forgotten from the angry black girl and her monster, where that he, you know, he's a much more self-aware person than one would typically expect from that, from that kind of character. You know, I mean, Chivo... He seems to be, again, they set him up as a little bit, as, you know, as a cat. He's going to, when he gets the girls in the car, he's going to really kind of be a creep. But when they just, when they finally go, no, no, he, he does listen. And later on, he actually encourages them not to mix drugs. And, and he's got this great line, which I loved, which was, uh, was it much like drugs are like friends and sex. You should never mix them. And right. I just thought, what, what a, what a weird thing for a drug dealer to say, but <laughs> Again, I, I've met drug dealers like that. You know, they're, they're always smart, not always, but they're often smarter than you think, right? We think of drug dealers as sort of simple, dumb, or like cruel people or whatever, but no, they're just people. And some of them are actually quite smart. They just don't fit in the established kind of way the system works. So they've chosen this as a career, but yeah. So I know I, I did appreciate that about it. So, you know, th those were some of the things that I liked. And I, I thought overall, like I said, the acting I thought was, was really quite good. I thought the cinematography was solid. I think the film did a good job in creating tension at points for the jump scare, but there was one element or one area where I just felt like it was a not that I felt was a notch below everything else in the film. And that was the effects. When the jump scares hit, I just found that the ghost girl to be hokey and just kind of, you oh, know, and that's, yeah, to me, it looked like her, her, she was done with practical with like masks and, and stuff. I believe but, so. Yeah. But then the creature at the end was CG, right? It, you know, pretty and pretty badly CG. Yeah. We'll talk uh, about the end at yeah, the end, yeah. but yeah. Oof. And we can talk about it's, it's narrative elements, but, uh, in terms of that, but in terms of just the effects, like I just, to me, it was like, okay. The acting's good. The, the film looks good. It, it's shot nicely. The locations are interesting. The story, okay, is maybe a little kind of cliche. You, I think procedural was a good word that you used to describe that. But then just the, the visuals, it just didn't work for me. It was just not near, like it was, the first jump scare maybe worked for me. But after that, I was just so distracted by how I felt like the mask or whatever she was wearing just didn't work. It looked... I don't know. It just, maybe it just, it didn't 
have enough movement to it. Maybe it was just too static, um, you know. And then, of course, the effects at the end just were just just felt, yeah, like fifteen years, you know, old. Yeah. So, so all of that stuff just really took away from what I thought had a chance to be. And I mean, it still has good elements, but I just thought it could have been a, even f- having those elements be better. And listen, I know they have budget limitations. So like maybe even lighting the girl different or having even quicker, maybe not having her as easily seen, but whatever it was, if those effects took away and just made it hard for me to fully kind of appreciate the rest of the film. Interesting. See, I, I actually, I found the girl quite creepy. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the jump scares really, they, they really got me. Okay. Uh, even, you know, once I figured out kind of where it was going, which it doesn't take much. Cause like I said, this is kind of a, yeah, paranormal procedural, like the ring, like smile from last year. You know, they're, they're, one, they almost always end badly. You know, they, they almost always end badly and, and you kind of know the beats. Once you figure out what's happening, oh, they're going to investigate. That means you got to talk to the last person who it happened to. And something usually befalls them, didn't this time, but usually something also happens to that person. Either they're scarred by their experience and they're a danger to the hero or the thing comes back to get them. Uh, So that all kind of, yeah, kind of fell in. And so after a while, it sort of robbed some of the suspense. And the ending, which again, I want to wait to talk about because I want to hit the ending with a baseball bat, just (laughs) narratively speaking. But um, yeah, the the jump scares, yeah, that that all kind of worked for me. Uh, But it was not... It was not a really tight film, like as you say, it's it. It was good. It wasn't. It wasn't great. Uh, but as far as the, like those jump scares go, in the beginning at least, I was. I you know they 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 got me, and I didn't notice a girl so much. I think the problem is, if I have to think about it, I think one of the problems is, and movies do this sometimes. Actually, this was a problem with Allegoria too, is they hold on the thing too long. Yeah. And if you hold on it too long, you really have a chance to examine it, and that's not good because you have to. You, you can't be able to think about it too long. And yes. like there was that, again, as much as I loved Allegoria, that when what's named Chrissy Fox turns into the monster and she's, it's just, they just hold on to it and you're just waiting for the, like the monster to go, okay, so, you know, tell me about you. Right. And right. that's, that's not a good place for a horror movie to be. Yeah. And we, I remember that was something we talked about there. There's some scenes where in Allegoria it did work. Like I think we talked about the one where he's sitting next to the creature on the, the, on the sofa, that one worked, but when it's supposed to really terrify you and jump scare you, yeah, it doesn't work. And Derek agrees with me. The eyes were the worst part of her look. He didn't like that. Elijah has a question based on what you're talking about. How do you feel the jump scares now compared to suspense, suspense uh, builds of films from the sixties and seventies? I mean, they're very different. That's, I mean, that's, I guess it's kind of a duh answer, but like that, yeah, hugely different. I mean, you look at stuff like the Giallo film or the Jolly films of that period, you know, the sort of precursor to the slashers. And they're really just all about, they're all about kind of not, not necessarily just tension, but, but like the, the, the look of the kill, you know, it's all kind of like the, the, the gore effects. Cause that was kind of pioneering all that shit at the time. So it was very much like, Oh, how does that, how does, Oh, it's so gross. You know, we're cutting them open or they're, you know, this is happening to the human body and you're, you know, or, or like Lucio Fulci. I mean, it's not, it's not a slasher, but like with zombie. You know, every time he had a movie, there was like eyes being punctured, right? And of course, the famous eye puncture from Zombie. So I feel like that was kind of the point of the exercise then. You know, they they didn't do jumps the same way. And I kind of feel like jump scares have become the same thing, you know, Joseph, how they've with music. All music has gotten louder and louder because they have to kind of, you know, compete. And I feel like the same things happen with jump scares. It's not necessarily about the effectiveness of, 
like like whether it serves a story or not, they just turn up the volume. And and I think like a really effective film will draw you in, make you expect that, and then change change up what it's giving you. Like like that one I told you about, Ganjam Haunted Asylum. There, there's a great one in there where you, they build it up and they build it up, and you're you're waiting for it. But it doesn't come. So, so yes, short, you know, TLDR. Basically, I think you're more likely to get, like now. Now is more about it. Everything's everything's more compressed. Movies are shorter generally. They got to get shit out there. They got to scare you faster. So there's not the they don't have time for the build in the same way. And, and also, audience expectations are different. People like we've seen bodies taken apart in every conceivable way on screen. So you can't just show that and have audiences be shocked. You have to like jolt people. Now, speaking of sort of kind of where horror films are now and, and kind of the predictable nature of it and, and you know, some of what you, you know, well aptly described as procedural there, I also look at this film and even though I love, like I talked about sort of the, the, the horror rooted in, in, uh, you know, Latino kind of folklore, it still at the same time felt like it was maybe an attempt to capitalize on the, the popularity of some of the conjuring universe stuff. And like, it's like, okay, well, they took the nun and a doll and kind of put them together and we get the communion girl, right? It's, it, it it's like the, it's the worst of both worlds or something, uh, you know, and they took <laughs> elements Annabelle of both pretty shit. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But you know, they, they take both the Catholic, you know, I, I just almost imagine like, someone in a room like well what if we get a like you know the catholic thing with the nun and the doll and put them together and we could have the communion girl and you know maybe i'm not so jaded as to believe that's exactly how it went but it but in some ways it does feel like just trying to see if we can kind of thrust these two things together into one one new film one chimera so you know i i'm i'm mixed on that because i think it's possible but at the same time i mean the Warren amalgamation. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I think that communion dolls, like, this is such a culturally Catholic thing. You know, like, communion dolls are a thing, and, and creepy dolls are a thing. I mean, if, if anything, I would say this is more of a Catholic horror film than, yes. than either of those things. Like, I think the nun just uses Catholic things as a trapping. You know, it, it doesn't actually, like, faith doesn't really come into it. Whereas I feel like this this sort of has a lot in it about community and faith and like one of the most interesting parts to me was the fact, and it's completely betrayed by the absolute dog shit ending, which again, we'll talk about it later. But the fact that, um, what's her name? Um, the little girl's mother, I can't remember the little girl's name off the top of my head. Marisol. Marisol's yes. mother at the beginning, she tells, she's trying to find her daughter out when all the kids are getting their pictures taken for communion. And she's, she says, you know, I told her not to play in the ruins. You know, she should play here with the dolls. And of course, as we discover in the end, I mean, the doll is actually the dangerous thing. And I think that's such a great statement that we're always, that we fear, we tend to fear the thing outside. You know, we tend to fear, oh, don't go to the ruins, stay here where it's safe, you know, but here is the danger. Most people, when they are subject to violence or misfortune, it's coming from someone they know. And I think true crime stuff, and, and maybe not just true crime stuff, but I think so much of our culture, we're, we're like, oh, we've got to worry about the outsiders. It can't be the people here. The people here are good, good people. And that's, again... That comes up a ton in this in this movie. You know, you are from outside. People from outside, we got to worry about them. People from here, they're okay. We'll tell you who are okay. And in actual fact, none of it is correct. You know, the people you have to watch out for are the ones who claim to be nice. Anyone telling you, I'm a good person, you should be immediately suspicious of. And I kind of felt like that was 
really well communicated in the film. And, and I, again, I feel like that's just a cultural thing that is not present in Annabelle number of horseshit or, or The Nun. And believe me, I, I love The Nun. I think The Nun's a great movie. Um, Annabelle, not so much, but The Nun I love. But again, I just don't think it has the same grasp of that culture. Derek makes a good point. If you add the water elements from this film, you can also add that bad Yodrona movie from the, right? So it's like you got three bad movies kind of, yeah. uh, you know, kind of merged together. <clears throat> and I got to say that was, because that was also in the Conjuring universe, that uh, La Yodrona film, and that was terrible. Let me just say this. I, as much as I love the lore of the Yodrona, I started watching that film and didn't finish it. Yeah. That's how that, right? Wait, no, is, no, there's two. There's the one on yeah, Shudder. Yeah, no, the one, I know the one, you, so I, the one that's in the Conjuring universe, I started watching, couldn't finish. There's the other one that I, I love that's, that is, uh, is a reimagining of, it. and I think I, I, we, I kind of boosted that in oh, uh, one of yeah, our yeah, episodes. Yeah. Um, and that one it, where it kind of reimagines in the story of revenge and a war crime sort of a context right. was an absolutely fantastic movie. I remember that now. Yeah. Funny enough, just on the subject of the Catholicism thing, yeah, yeah, there was a moment in the film right at the beginning that just made me squirm, and it had nothing to do with horror, and it had everything to do with two girls whispering in church. Okay, because obviously I was raised, you know, Catholic, and I had to go to mass, and you don't do that. You don't do that. That was giving me anxiety. These girls whispering loudly in church, and I said, "No, the priest can hear you. You don't do that. The priest can hear you." And of course, they get scolded. And I thought, "Oh man, it just made me twitch." You know, you don't talk in church. You know, I, I don't have, I'm not from a Catholic background, but I did spend a lot of years, even a few decades attending church in more of a Protestant setting. But that made me a little uncomfortable as well. Just, yeah. <laughs> just waiting for that pastor to kind of give you the evil eye, right? Or, yeah. Or, well, usually in the kind of churches I went, it would be just a little old lady, you know, who, you know, one of those prayer warriors that's the, like 80 years old that everyone loves, you know, yep. Sister Sarah. And she, you know, hit you over the head with something, but yeah. One of the things that I didn't like about it was something you kind of talked about, um, uh, and, and maybe this might lead into something you were wanting to kind of get to, but as it was resolving, right. And we got to the point where, oh, the ghost just wants a hug, right. And right. to be found. Okay. So that's a little bit cliche. And I was just in my notes, I, I have, I really hope they don't have one of those cliche endings where you think everything went safe. And they're not. Yeah. And of course, they had one of those cliche endings where you think everyone's safe and they're not. So mad. And it, it ruined it for me at that end. I mean, I want, do something more creative. Surprise me. Do something I don't see coming and show me something creative. And so, I, I you know, you've kind of been uh, signaling that you don't like, you didn't like the end. And I didn't either. So I'm going to kind of set you up with that, that underhand pitch and let you hit it out of the park. Tell me how and why you hated that ending. So again, up to that point, I'd seen that movie before, but I don't mind that. I, I, there's, there's nothing wrong with making a perfectly good workmanlike, you know, journeyman type film in that vein. I like investigative movies. I like horror movies. It looked great. It was, as I said, I liked the people. I really like connected with the characters. I, I still have lots to say about like authoritarian, um, authoritarian parenting and stuff like that. And I love that we're seeing a, a story of the eighties, but from Spain, which is not something we see, you know, usually the eighties are seen through the American lens. I loved all that. And again, okay. We found the little girl and I thought this is, this is the time usually when they, they get in the well, 
this is when the big exorcism happens. Um, and of course, this is when the powers start going nuts, right? Because all of a sudden it's gone from blowing some curtains around. Now it can whip these people through doors, through up against the wall, down a well. And her leg should have been reduced to matchsticks falling down that goddamn well. And and everyone's getting chucked around, pulled away. And I thought, okay, so this, this thing is just like, this is, we've lost all sense of perspective. This is just the incredible Hulk as, as ghost. Now, like there, there are no rules. And I know the director also made mirrors too. And now I, I haven't seen that, but I, mirrors is one of the few movies I've turned off because it became very clear that the ghosts just have, they can do whatever the script needs them to do. And that is such a tiresome trope. You know, the devil is, has infinite power. God does nothing and, and fine, whatever. I, like, I, I understand theologically why you might, that's an appealing thing. Cause you sort of romanticize or not romanticize, but you like exoticize the thing you fear, but like it's not compelling and it's, it's lazy. And so when that started happening, I started sinking and then she's holding this woman or sorry, the, the girl is holding her, the thing, the, the well is filling with water. And I thought, okay, these things usually don't end well. So maybe this is how this ends, or there's going to be like a screaming and a, a purge. And then it was just a, it was, it was a, like a hold, you know, like love. And I thought, oh, that's what a nice Refreshing. concept. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not like I think it was the ring where they take the, the top off the well and, you know, Samara's like loosed now she's loosed. Cause I think the notion that the ghost is just, it's bitter because it was neglected and abandoned you know, and, and lost and it's angry because it's lost and alone and scared. And I mean, who hurts people like hurt people, hurt people. Right. So I thought, oh, what a nice way. And it, this is solved with love. We welcome the child home. We, we, you know, we sort of apologize to it for what happened. And in, in that we break the cycle and it would be such a, given everything that happened in the movie, that would be such a, a poetic way to end it. Right. Because we've got generational violence. We, we have generational alcohol abuse. Like there's a, really sad scene where Rebe deals with her father's abuse and his drunkenness and he passes out. She goes to the bar and she orders a beer and, and it just, it's so sad. Cause I've seen that. I know a guy and I have to be vague, but I know a guy who, who has an alcoholic parent and he used to say he's going, he would go home to see him and he would tell me, Oh God, I got to go see my parents. I got to have to get drunk before I do. I'm so sick. My dad's so disgusting. His dad was a drunk. So in order to go deal with his father, he had to get a load on it. He couldn't see what he was perpetuating with that. He just, it was gone. Right. So I thought, oh, this would be a really nice way to end this. And it was, and, and I thought it was going to work. I love the way the, the well drained. I thought, oh, nice. But there was still nine minutes left in the movie. And I thought, okay, nope, I know where this is going. And I thought it better not do what I think it's about to do. And then it does. And not only does it do it, it does it in such a way that it just completely disregards its own rules. Here's a character you know nothing about. Here's a character we have not discussed before, uh, an evil force that we have not in any way um, dealt with. Just boom, this, this, now here's another thing. Are we going to resolve it? Nope. Nope. It's, it's basically the equivalent of the gong show with the hook and just the monster, the monster hits the gong, whoop, and we're back to zero. And it really pissed me off because it was cheap. It was lazy. It had no connection to anything that had happened before. And it was just, just bulk standard, ah, but it's not over, um, nihilistic ending bullshit. And, and, and that's very much a 2000s thing, I guess, in a lot of ways, right? Like, and it happens a lot in horror. And I don't know wh why, I don't know if horror is expected to be nihilistic or what, 
but they just, they pull the rug out at the very end and aha, the killer's still alive and the people who thought were safe, they're dead now. And the thing is, just making a horror movie doesn't mean you get to ignore all the rules of narrative. If it's cheap and shitty in a regular movie, it's cheap and shitty in this. I think a lot of times films do those kinds of things because they want to set up for a sequel, right? But I'm like, I don't want to see a movie with that creature. It just what I, it, it just no. was not interesting. It looked it me. looked terrible, and it was completely out of keeping with everything else in the film because we hadn't seen anything that looked like that. So it was completely like totally just jarring. And if they're going to make a sequel, you can make a goddamn sequel. You you don't have to you don't have to like leave in a really gross hook that again essentially invalidates what's come before because you've invested in these characters. They've gone through an arc. They've worked through their thing and now just, ah, uh-huh. and sure that happens in real life, you know, in real life. Oh, I worked, you end up like, what's his name? The comedian, Sam Kinison, you know, angry guy screaming all the time, finally starts to sort his shit out, deal with his anger, have a happy life, gets in a car wreck, dies. Fine. Okay. But real, but narrative in film in, in like in storytelling is different. It can't be arbitrary bullshit. Like, do you remember the movie? Remember me? with Robert Pattinson, and I can't remember who played the female lead. But I don't know like if I ever saw that. Well, you're not missing anything. There's <laughs> one thing that makes it memorable, and that's, if I remember correctly, the love story wraps up, they resolve their shit, he goes to work in the Twin Towers on September 11th. He dies in the, in the, in the uh, attack on the Twin Towers. And I, I cannot imagine, you may as well just put a title card up in there that says, fuck you. And that's how I felt about the ending of this. You may as well, after all this, oh, do you care about these characters? Are you invested in them? Do you, or do you like that they've overcome generational trauma? They've leaned on each other as children and built these bonds. And do you want to see how that ends? Well, here's a title card that says in Spanish, and I'm sure Derek can help me with this. Fuck you. <laughs> I was mad. No, okay. I can tell. I, you, you are definitely, yeah, this is a side of brand I don't normally see in these. And it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I think I might lose the Toctagon match this time, right? Because you've got a little extra something, something you're bringing. Um, yeah, no, I think that make that makes so much sense. It it, it really just invalidated much of the film. It, it just again the characters we liked the characters. They were well done characters. So I was probably more invested in these characters than I am in many horror films we watch. And yeah, they just kind of took a shit on that, right? And and and. It's one of those things where it seems like so many directors are are scared of having a happy ending. Like like you're not allowed to do that or something. It seems like, and not that you should chase the happy ending either. But like like sometimes it just makes more sense for them to they made it, they survived. Like not everyone survived, but these ones survived. And and the story of the resolution of the girl, you know, and and all the things you talked about so eloquently there to me is a much better ending than this ham handed sort of thing that they threw at us. And, and you wonder what was the motivation to do that? It, it I don't know. I mean, it, again, it, it, are they trying to set up for a sequel? There's other ways you can do that. Um, you don't have to do, do it in that way. Um, are they just trying to have that fearful ending or that best, that, that tragic ending because they feel like they're supposed to, and I don't know, be different, have a happy ending once in a while. Yeah, I, I'd be curious to know what the original script was like. 
you know, whether it went through sort of iterations and whether there was a sort of a, a, a like an original version that was, no, this is how I want it to end. I want to subvert those tropes and have it end with, we're not ending with a battle, we're ending with a hug. And because this is how you end these cycles of violence and so have some jamoke come in and say, well, sure, that's how you end cycles of violence, but also, you know, uh, cycles of violence never really end. So there has to be a monster and a sequel, you know, because there'd be some half-assed way to justify it story-wise, but I'd be curious to know, or, or if it was always just this, this stupid, stupid ending. Let me, okay, so let me throw this at you, and Rin's saying they, they should have uh, tried to be different in a different way. Um, yeah. Okay, so let me, let me pitch in a, a different ending. That is the happy, happy ending, but it, and t- it's a little cliche, but tell me if you would have been okay with this ending. An ending where, you know, you see them going about their life, and then there's a shot of a dog at some point getting the doll and then running away with it with the implication bees being that the doll is going to end up with someone else now. I mean, that would be fine. I, I, I mean, I think that even that would be difficult because it doesn't, we haven't established what the threat is. Like currently we think the threat is Marisol. So if we resolve Marisol, but the doll is still an issue, then we have to set up, if they had done the end bit where Marisol as a little girl finds the doll, and then all that shit happens at the beginning where we set up the doll is the threat was a threat to Marisol as well. Not just Marisol somehow imprinted on the doll. Maybe then, maybe then that would have worked because then you're establishing that there is a pre-existing threat that Marisol just happened to fall victim to. Well, let me say though, I think they set that up in a subtle way because okay. there is a, there is a scene where the dog brings it to her, which is why I kind of brought the dog in there and with when you see a, a flashback with marisol and her parents and she gets they find the doll and they give it to her and then you see a mark develop on marisol's arm after she gets the doll is that in the beginning of the film or the end that's in the middle kind of more towards the end even it's somewhere midway through okay because i thought i thought that scene happened at the very end after maybe towards the end after it, the bullshit twist the fi- i thought the final scene was marisol finding the doll in a field and asking her parents if she could keep it um i, f- I and maybe we'd have to go back and watch but i feel like this is one of those flashbacks when they start to unpack what marisol's story was oh, okay but there's a scene where the dog brings the finds the doll and brings it to the father or he gets it from the dog which it's the same dog that if you remember when they were all in the forest they saw the dog like hang killed hung which took which right. i so i'm assuming the father did that to the dog because it somehow right is kind of like this e- dog brought this evil doll it, it was some sort of lashing out that so again i'd have to go back and watch it but i don't remember exactly where it was but there's a point where they're unpacking that oh okay the, the the father was not abusive he did love her and things started going badly when the doll arrived and um and so it's a flashback scene when they when she first gets the doll and she's standing there with her mom and they're like okay well let's go and then you see on her arm right the first mark so okay. i don't remember exactly what it is but to me that set up to, in my mind that there was something with this doll that was not okay i guess yeah i i guess it would just I needed more than that. Yeah. If again, if you want me to, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I missed it somehow. <laughs> and so they get you to watch it again, right? Never, <laughs> never, <laughs> not happening. Again, I I liked it overall, but I just no. The, the end just really me off. lost you. Yeah. Yeah. The ending really pissed me off. Oh, there was something I was going to bring up. Uh, let me just have a look at my notes here. 
Oh, right. So something that, that I thought was kind of effective was just the, the feeling of the Marisol's mother and looking for her daughter and her fear. You know, I felt that that woman did a great job of communicating that. It, it reminded me of another film called Who Saw Her Die, which is a, a giallo from the 70s, I want to say, starring George Lazenby of all people. And it's about a little girl who's abducted and uh, in, in Italy. And it's, it's really good. It, it's, and the, one of the things that really nails is when she first goes missing, that, f- now I don't have kids, but obviously I've got a niece and I know what it's like to kind of lose track of her for a second. And it draws that feeling out when your little girl is, your, or your kid's out there in the world and they're not where they're supposed to be. And as more and more time passes, it becomes more and more apparent that something is very wrong, not just kind of wrong, very wrong. And it, it really communicates that well. And I kind of felt like her performance communicated that well when she was trying to find her, that, that desperation, that sense of, you know, something is not right here, I, I thought was was pretty effective. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like every time there is a communion, you know, she apparently shows up and has to be escorted away. Um, you know, so that that's kind of interesting. And it, it, it first sets her up almost like you think, oh, is this a crazy person who's here, you know, and, and what is that? And then then later when you when they go to her home and visit her, you see that she's not a crazy person, but she's a person who's, you know, obviously been through something traumatic, losing her daughter and hasn't gotten over that. Um, and you know, so she kind of, yeah, toes that line a little bit there and, and plays that well. So, yeah, no, I, I, I see that. And, you know, certainly as a parent, that is the scariest thing you can imagine. So the idea of that possibly happening. Um, I, I happen to notice this going by Derek mentioning uh, something about the ruins and he wanted to know what the deal was. And I actually think, um, I think that was just a, a, a consequence of the location, Derek. I think it was, as I recall, it was shot in a town in Spain that was partially destroyed, I want to say during the Civil War. And so I think, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. During the Spanish, the uh, town was destroyed during the Spanish Civil War, and the lower part of the town was rebuilt, but the upper part, uh, including the old church, has been left as a reminder. So I think that was just the location, and uh, they're just sort of taking advantage of, of existing spaces. I want to go back though to, again, something I really thought this, this nailed and something that really kind of spoke to me, not because I'd really dealt with it. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't have restrictive parents, you know, my mom, I, my, my dad wasn't around, but my mom wasn't restrictive. You know, I was kind of very much allowed to sort of do my own thing. So I was, I've always been a very like kind of self-regulating kid, but this, again, that's something I feel like the eighties really, and might still be, but I feel like that's how, what I associate with the eighties is this really overly restrictive parenting, you know, where Sarah's parents, her dad is needlessly cruel to her and needlessly authoritarian because he thinks that's what she needs. But it's because he feels, I think he feels guilt for not being around. And so he feels like in order to make up for his absence, he has to be an authoritarian. And it's, it's the, I think it's just a terrible way to parent because your kids don't trust you to be reasonable. And if your kids don't trust you to be reasonable, they're not going to trust you when things go badly for them. And Sarah's father was obviously he was physically, or Rebe's father was physically abusive. You know, Sarah's parents were, or her father was almost as bad because she couldn't trust him for different reasons. And that really, really resonated with me. Again, just this, this idea that parents really kind of failed kids in a lot, can fail kids in, in a lot of ways. And sometimes in ways that they think makes them feel good, makes them feel good because they think they're doing something right. I'm, I, I'm just thinking like just sociologically, trying to put together why that might be thinking about 
the things that the parents in that era went through and, and just kind of the various cultural influences. And, you know, obviously I'm going to be thinking in a North American context, but you think of, okay, a lot of the parents who are parenting in the eighties, basically, you know, this parenting, our generation basically kind of grew up in the sixties themselves, a lot of them. And, you know, certainly the counterculture and hippie movements and, and a lot of that, <laughs> maybe some of those parents just thought about, you know, what they were doing when they were teenagers <laughs> and didn't want their kids, you know, kind of living, doing whatever they did. But I also think about when, I, when I was that age, that was the era when like it became part of like child abductions became a major part at news of that and stories of that and television shows drop made based on real stories of children who'd been, uh, you know, abducted and kidnapped. That was a really, I remember that being a major part of kind of the, the, the cultural fabric of the time and just being fearful of getting kidnapped and, and, you know, um, you know, certainly the, 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 what was his name? Uh, Walsh who does, did the, uh, the, that television series, and his son, Adam Walsh, I think it was, I believe, who got was kidnapped. And that's how that he kind of, as the father of him in the story, and that's how he kind of came to be known. And I remember there was a, there was a, like a, a document or docu or drama show based on him. John Walsh, thank you. Um, I remember there was a, there was like a TV miniseries or something about that. And so parents fearful of, children being abducted and then you add to that the satanic panics of the time as well you know uh these fears that there were satanic cults that were whatever kidnapping abducting and murdering people which was you know not at all true i wonder how much of those kinds of things paired with parents having to increasingly be dual income you know both having to work and not being able to be there so ha wanting to be extra strict to sort of create a more rigid uh, kind of culture or environment at home where kids, they couldn't be there to watch them. So they laid down the law and were more authoritarian. So I wonder how much of those, how much of those things influenced that era of parenting? I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, and I think too, I think we, if we go back to this notion of kids being accessories and kids being a, a particularly expensive pet until a certain age. So I think you can just, oh, well, you'll do whatever I tell you to do. Nothing in this world works like that. Nothing does. It's just, it's idiotic. And, and again, I understand why they might parent like that, but it was, again, it was just sort of a fascinating time capsule because I, again, I think, well, maybe attitudes haven't changed. You know, I, I was thinking about like policing, like all the data suggests that really harsh kind of broken window style policing just breeds more violence, you know, which is not to say you, you let everyone have free reign, but acting like, uh, you know, there's sort of that conservative wet dream of, of like the iron, like the iron fist ruling everything and that will make it okay. Like all we need is ultimate control. It, that's just a dream that doesn't work. Nothing works like that. And so again, I, I think I understand the, the reasoning for it, but I, I was just sort of, again, I, I don't know, like, I don't know if parenting is still like that. Obviously I don't have kids. Um, but you know, I saw certainly new people who were raised that way and I don't like the people I know who were, I don't think it improved them as people. You know, I, I'm trying to think of some of the guys I knew who were like, I knew a guy, you know, he had a certain amount of TV time he was allowed healthy snacks only and so on. And, and that guy still drank and, and, you know, screwed his way through his twenties and thirties, uh, just because he was trying to find his place in the world. You know, it, it didn't, it wasn't like a bulletproof vest for the, the troubles that were going to come his way, you know? 
Yeah, I think, and you know, I'm a parent, but my children are still young enough that I haven't seen how badly I've messed them up. Uh, so we'll see, <laughs> check in in 10 years, right? Um, my, But my, you know, my, my sense as a parent and as someone who studies human behavior, you know, and, and, and knows a little bit about some of these things, but maybe not as much as I think I do. You know, I think it's the, the, the disciplinary style has much less impact on who the person becomes and then does the kinds of uh, behaviors and ways of acting and thinking you model and, and, and project, encourage and demonstrate and, and, and just kind of your relationship with them. I mean, I'm kind of a strict parent. I mean, and I, I can, you know, but I'm also a very loving parent. Like I, you know, I tell my children that I love them and I, I you know, I, I sit with them and watch TV with them. And I, you know, so I, I pair those things. But I also know of parents who are very strict and think that's how they're going to keep their their kids, you know, out of trouble or whatever. And their, their parent or the kids end up resenting it, right? So because they, they didn't balance it with, the kind of the the nurturing side that w- was necessary. So I think, I mean, obviously there are extremes. If you are far, far too lenient or far, far too rigid, that can cause problems. But I think it's so much more about all the other things in terms of how your kids are going to end up. You can be kind of strict if you do all the other things to nurture relationships and, and help them feel loved, supported, and valued. Um, and, you know, but also at the same time, if you're kind of lenient, but you really, you know, model good things and they'll probably be okay as well. So, yeah. And, and again, I, I, I have nothing to say on the subject of raising kids, Joseph. That would be disingenuous of me to even suggest that I do. So I, I'm only speaking in, in context of the film, but it, you know, the, the way the parents are portrayed, they, the relationship they've established with their kids. And again, I, I, th- I think this is the case having grown up in that era. I think this led to keep people keeping secrets from their parents. And I think that makes your kid less safe because if, if they're out in the world, they're going to be out in the world at some point. And if they are in any way functioning in the world, and if they feel like they can't come to you with an issue free of judgment, um, like for example, there's a great moment where I thought was really, again, very kind of emblematic of how kids were raised back then. When Rebbe is on the phone, she's very, like she's suffering. And Sarah says to her father, she's in trouble. And he's like, she can sort herself out. Because to him, her problems, they're not real. And, you know, that to me, that says rationally, like, okay, I can't trust you. You know, you you are not a safe person because my friend is in trouble and you don't trust me enough to know what real trouble is. And therefore, I won't come to you when I have problems. Or, you know, like she was lost out in the woods. She could have just called her dad and sure, like, you know, work, all that shit. You know, but at the same time, if there had been a relationship of trust, she maybe might have gotten grounded, but he, she would have got home safe instead of hitchhiking with a drug dealer somewhere out in the woods. Like if there had been a relation, a, a, an air of trust between them, the film wouldn't happen. No, that and makes so a lot I, of sense. Yeah. So that's, that's more, more what I mean. Like, um, yeah, because again, I think if, and I understand, I know people who have kids get real, real angry when people who don't have kids even dare say the word children for Christ's sakes, never mind, <laughs> suggest how they might be raised. But I think if, yeah, if your kids can't trust you to be a rational person, then you're going to, it's not about being strict, not strict, but if they can't trust you to be a reasonable, rational, rational person, they're going to keep secrets and they're going to end up taking home a haunted doll. So there you go. <laughs> That's the lesson, you know, uh, have good communication if you don't want your kids having a haunted doll. That's it. I don't make the rules, man. That's fair. 
<laughs> All right, Joseph, as always, we like to keep these things under an hour. So with that in mind, do you have any final thoughts on the communion girl? Final thoughts is I liked like 80% of it and 20% of it really sadly kind of, you know, made it hard for me to recommend the film. Oh, you know, in that regard, but it's, I think there are enough good things. That I think it's worth watching. You just, you know, the acting, the, 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 the human notes, like you talked about um, the visuals in terms of the cinematography and things like that. But it, it had so much potential. It got so many of those things right. And then yeah. it just kind of didn't stick the landing. Yeah. I mean, turn it off after they leave the well. Just imagine they all went for ice cream. That's the version of the film you want to see anyways. So that is the way to do it. Uh, and yeah, I, I feel the same way. Sort of an 80-20 mix. Um, if you're looking for a ghost story and something you haven't seen before, you could do worse. Yep. Uh, now, do you have any films that you wanted to recommend? Uh, not at this point. I think I think we're good on my end with that. Okay, uh, so for me, I would just say if you haven't seen it, the film I mentioned, Who Saw Her Die, it's last I checked, it was streaming on Arrow, which is very reasonably priced and very much worth your time. Some brilliant classic horror movies on there. And I also want to recommend the film Last Voyage of the Demeter. It's not at all independent. You know, it's budgeted $45 million. <laughs> so it's, it's not an independent film. It's a major studio release, but it is really good. And it just is just sank in theaters, which is a shame because we don't get monster movies like that very often. And I really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, check out Last Voyage of the Demeter. Check out Who Saw Her Die. And you know what? What the hell? If you, if you want to watch something that's not going to challenge your brain too much, but it's going to help you kill 100 minutes, watch Island Escape. It's on, it's available for rent everywhere. It's a fun time loop movie. That, again, I didn't feel was a great fit for this show, but it's still just kind of fun to watch and zone out to. Again, not high art, just just fun. And uh, where can everyone find you online, Joseph? Well, you can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-13, Jokomo13. Uh, and then if you happen to be interested in NFL football, my other thing, you can find the Cardinal Rule on YouTube. All right. I am, of course, uh, Largely the Truth on Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads. My account is active, on, or pardon me, my account is still there on Twitter, but I, I don't use it anymore. You can find me on the Ghost Story Guys podcast, co-hosted with Paul Bestel of Mysteries and Monsters, and that's everywhere fine podcasts live. If you're listening to the audio version of this show, make sure to check out our monthly live streams. That's where we're recording this. They're a ton of fun. We love hanging out with our listeners. And yeah, follow us on YouTube. Follow us on, we're not really on any of the social media, but uh, yeah, you can reach us at weirdtogethershow at gmail.com. you find us there. All music on this show is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. You can find their stuff streaming everywhere you get your music. And at therevenants1.bandcamp.com. Our theme song is Rest in Peace, also by The Revenants. And that is from the album Music from Big Beige. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not? Be weird together. Let me-